and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Huscher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 9th through Saturday the 11th feature guest conductor Lahav Shani and Beatrice Rana, pianist. The program includes the classical Symphony No. 1 by Prokofiev, the Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff, and after intermission, Symphonic Dances by Rachmaninoff. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Prokofiev Classical Symphony No. 1, a work lasting about 15 minutes. Hector Berlioz was unusual among great composers because he could not play the piano and therefore didn't compose at the keyboard. Igor Stravinsky, on the other hand, said that every single note he wrote was first tested at the piano. During Stravinsky's lifetime, music began to explore sonic worlds that the piano couldn't begin to suggest, and composers increasingly turned to the instrument only for occasional reference, like an old, out-of-print book. Sergei Prokofiev composed this classical symphony to try his ability in writing away from the keyboard. Like most composers, who are also virtuoso pianists, Prokofiev regularly worked at the piano. When he decided to spend the summer of 1917 in a small village near Petrograd, now St. Petersburg, removed from the advances of war, he intentionally rented a place with no piano, suspecting that thematic material composed without a piano was often better. The surprising decision to write a symphony in the style of Haydn was perhaps suggested by the simple fact that Prokofiev did not regularly play the piano works by Haydn or Mozart. Their music was, therefore, in his head, not in his fingers. And the classical style, with its lucid textures, textbook forms, and straightforward harmonic procedures, made it easier to work without his familiar crutch. Prokofiev had studied Haydn's music with Nikolai Cherepnin, and he felt there was still something left to be done in the style. It seemed to me that if Haydn had lived to our day, he would have retained his own style of writing while absorbing something of the new. That was the kind of symphony I wanted to write, and when I saw that it was beginning to gel, I called it classical symphony, first because it was simpler, and second, just for fun, to tease the geese, and with the secret hope that eventually the symphony would become a classic. Prokofiev begins with familiar materials. In fact, the opening bars, scored for pairs of winds, trumpets, and horns with timpani and strings, launched firmly in D major and marked allegro, could almost be from Haydn's own pen. But in measure seven, the violins begin to play five notes to the beat, and when, two bars later, a repetition of the opening phrase slips down into C major, we are unmistakably jolted from the 18th century to the 20th. From that point on, Prokofiev continues to throw in harmonic twists and extra beats where we least expect them. The Larghetto is a perfectly lovely slow movement, with its melody born in the stratosphere where many of Prokofiev's and none of Haydn's themes dwell. The pointedly brief third movement is pure Prokofiev. For one thing, Haydn wrote minuets, not gavots, with its middle section grounded over one unchanging harmony. Haydn surely would have loved Prokofiev's finale, with its high spirits and good humor, the way the recapitulation arrives out of the blue is one of Haydn's oldest tricks. Prokofiev's first symphony was considerably successful, and as time proved, he had created a classic. 
A month after the first performance of the classical symphony, Prokofiev was granted permission to come to the United States. He made his first appearance in this country on November 1918, playing a solo recital in New York City. The following month, he came to Chicago to play his first piano concerto with Frederick Stock and the Chicago Symphony and to lead the orchestra in the first American performances of his Scythian Suite. His success encouraged the directors of the Chicago Opera to offer to produce his new Love for Three Oranges, which he had begun on the boat while crossing the Atlantic. Two weeks before the world premiere of the opera, in December 1921, at the Auditorium Theater, Prokofiev returned to Orchestra Hall to conduct the Chicago Symphony's first performances of his Classical Symphony. Program notes by Philip Pusher on the Classical Symphony No. 1 by Prokofiev. And now, on to Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. The work lasts about 23 minutes. In 1934, after Rachmaninoff had built himself a new villa, which came in seriously over budget, Steinway Company sent him a new piano as a housewarming present. At the time, Rachmaninoff was as famous as any pianist alive, but his heyday as a composer appeared to be over. His best-known work, the C-sharp minor prelude, was more than 40 years old, and his popular second and third piano concertos had been composed just after the turn of the century. Since the composer and his family escaped Russia on December 23, 1917, he had written very little. He had withdrawn his fourth piano concerto for revision after its disastrous early performances in 1927, and his only other major work, the Variations on a Theme of Corelli for Solo Piano, composed in 1931, left audiences cold. When restless listeners coughed, he would leave out the next variation. On one tour, he played the entire piece complete just once. At a time when Schoenberg, almost his exact contemporary, Bartok and Stravinsky all had new things to say, Rachmaninoff seemed old hat. In the meantime, he continued to enjoy celebrity status as a pianist, although he hated living out of hotel rooms and Pullman cars. He appeared with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in December 1909 on his first trip to this country to play his second piano concerto, and he returned to perform with the orchestra six times over the next three decades. This rhapsody is the work Rachmaninoff wrote to help pay for his dream house and to try out his new piano. It turned out to be just the piece to revive his reputation as a composer as well. Rachmaninoff twice changed the title of his newest score, a set of variations for solo piano and orchestra, before he settled on Rhapsody. The work is a rather large one, but it is no concerto, he told his sister-in-law the day after he finished it, but almost miraculously, it immediately proved to be as popular as his two beloved concertos, the second, with its generous and romantic theme, which later made a fortune for Buddy Kay and Ted Mosman, though not for Rachmaninoff, as Full Moon and Empty Arms, and the famously difficult third. Rachmaninoff played the piano solo at the premiere of the Rhapsody in Baltimore, and overjoyed to have his first new hit vehicle in a quarter century, he performed it often over the next few months on both sides of the Atlantic. Rachmaninoff introduced the score to Chicago on November 7, 1935, in Orchestra Hall. The Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini turned out to be the last work he composed for the instrument he loved most.
The theme Rachmaninoff picked was the last of the 24 caprices for unaccompanied violin by Niccolo Paganini, the great superstar violinist of the early 19th century. He was famous not only for his astounding virtuosity, but for his concert attire. He dressed entirely in black, and his offstage antics, it was rumored that the fourth string of his violin, which produced an especially glorious tone, had been made from the intestine of his mistress, whom he had murdered. Rachmaninoff, himself one of the pianists who carried this great romantic virtuoso tradition into our century, was drawn to the same Paganini caprice that had already been arranged for piano by Schumann, Liszt, and Brahms, and would later be reworked by composers as dissimilar as Vito Lulusowski and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Paganini's 24th caprice is itself a set of 11 variations on a sculptural, rapidly leaping theme. Rachmaninoff does not begin with the theme, but with a variation instead. The orchestra sketches the harmonic background for the absent theme as if in anticipation. Appropriately, it is the strings rather than the piano solo that first state Paganini's tune some 30 seconds into the piece. Rachmaninoff then proceeds with his variations, some dazzling and brilliant as diamonds, some sumptuous and soft, some as explosive as cadenzas, and one so achingly beautiful that it quickly became a great favorite with the public. That one is for my agent, Rachmaninoff said at the time. The music is all spun from the curves and leaps of Paganini's theme until the seventh variation, when Rachmaninoff introduces the lumbering presence of the Dies Irae, a familiar phrase of plain song from the Gregorian Mass for the Dead. Berlioz used it to breathtaking effect in his Symphony Fantastique. The Dies Irae returns, this time in thundering octaves in the tenth variation. The music changes direction shortly thereafter, and then... With the 17th variation, all suspense and shadow, Rachmaninoff masterfully sets the scene for the great lyrical expanse of the now famous Variation 18. It's soaring melody, so fresh and magnificent that many listeners cannot believe that it all derives from one of Paganini's busy curlicues simply turned upside down. This lovely dream ends abruptly, and from there, through several brilliant variations and a quick cadenza full of octaves, it is mostly bravura and fireworks. The Dies Irae comes back one last time. In the coda, just two measures long, the piano pronounces the end. Program notes by Philip Husher on the Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.